Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I continue to travel the globe and meet the most amazing heart-centered leaders. And I'm excited to introduce you to Mark Silver. Mark and I were supposed to interview about a month ago and life happened. So we pivoted, we rescheduled, and I'm so happy that I'm able to get him in as we are fast approaching the end of season two. So let me tell you a little bit about Mark. He's a business coach with over 20 years experience, and he's a designated Sufi master teacher. I'm hoping I said that right, Mark. He has worked with over 4,000 business owners since 2001. And here's my favorite part about Mark. He helps them integrate heart, integrity, and spirit with grounded business effectiveness. So can you already see why I needed to have Mark on this show? We need to have a great talk with him and deep dive into all things heart-centered. So Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be able to be here after the last month. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you're better. You and your wife are feeling better. And it's always nice to acknowledge the vulnerability that life can throw us when we've got scheduled things and you weren't feeling well. My first reaction was, I hope you have a speedy recovery. And I took a half hour break and had a coffee. Yes. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. So you have been an entrepreneur for 21 years. Yes, evidently. (laughs) I would love to hear the backstory. My first leadership question, did you see and feel the need to integrate heart-centered leadership qualities from the get-go when you started? Or was it something that evolved from your own self-awareness? I will admit that I have resisted the word leadership not recently, but in the early years, I resist the word leadership a lot. I was self-employed in the beginning and I did not have a good experience with corporate America in that I'd had a job where it was a union job as a union shop steward. We had to get our general manager fired by the larger company because of the terrible things that she was doing. I have not been generally impressed with how large businesses have operated in the world, especially this time that I've been alive, there's been tremendous damage wreaked in the drive for profits. And so I was focused on very small business. And over the years, as my company grew, I mean, we have a paycheck, a paycheck, we have a payroll. I hope I have a paycheck. We have a payroll now. And, you know, it's a company. I still have a lot of the same beliefs and attitudes that I had before. And I really had to embrace the idea of leadership and what leadership meant and how to undermine kind of unconscious power structures, both within our company and also supporting 
our own clients, many of whom are self-employed or have very small companies, about how to really have a much more integrated, healthy relationship with the people around them, whether it's clients or colleagues or team members. And it's such a unique observation. And I, I think I can join you in alignment with what you beautifully frame there. Vital culture, it's not thriving right now. And and leaders are not thriving. And as much as we're in this on and off again, hybrid model globally, and continuing to navigate unprecedented times, having the title leader doesn't mean that you have all the answers. And it leads me nicely into my next question, which has permanent residency on the show. I've asked 160 plus leaders this question, Mark. What imperfections do you bring to your heart-centered leadership? I don't know anything I do that's perfect, right? So there's imperfections in terms of how I hear people. There's imperfections in terms of how I express myself. There's imperfections in the requests that I ask of my team always asking them to make sure that they push back if I'm asking for something that's unreasonable or I don't understand the impact of what I'm asking. I go out of my way. I trust and hope, you know, so that people feel as comfortable as they can bringing up difficult things to me. My wife is my partner in the business. We make a lot of, imp- there's so much, you know, I mean, I mean, we had to kind of catch ourselves and say, okay, We can't do these kind of drive-by meetings while somebody's doing the dishes or somebody's, you know, because we're then not in our hearts around really being focused on what the meeting's about. And instead, it's much easier to get reactive or angry or upset. And so the question that you're asking is so far ranging in terms of the answer. I mean, there's, as a person of faith, there is no perfection that the human being owns. And I try to remember that. And I try to ask people around me to remind me (laughs) when it becomes obvious. You know, that kind of an attitude, if taken too far, can, of course, lead to paralysis. Because if we're expecting perfection, we're expecting things to always be right. There's a teaching that says, you know, what you know in this moment suffices you, you know, and we can still move forward with confidence and boldness and clarity. And yet, at the same time, holding an inclusive awareness of the humility that, you know, I'm sure I'm missing something. We're going to step forward boldly, and I'm sure something will have to be course corrected or fixed or or redone. But, you know, I'm still going to move forward. Absolutely. There is no perfection, which is why I love the name of this show, Imperfect. And being heart-centered is doing the hard things transitioning with hard things, saying hard things, but in a heart-centered way, beautifully framed. I always have fun with that question because my guests always laugh and say, how much time do we have, Deb? Like, there's a long list. There's a long list. (laughs) I want to talk to you about something that you call big reservations around traditional sliding scales. And you say, where pay from the heart might not work too well. So give us the slant on this. Is it leaning towards operations or a fiduciary responsibility? Tell us where that was created in your heart and how it has a place in your leadership. Yeah, it's a really good question. A few years ago, we had been experimenting as a business model and a pricing model with some pay from the heart. A course that we had run for years normally fills up. One year just didn't. And I was like, what is going on? And just put it out as a question to our audience saying, you know, 
normally this class fills were a little confused. We don't, no, nothing else has changed. And people were just really struggling financially. And we're like, okay, well, whatever, let's open it up. You pay from the heart. But I had always had a resistance to sliding scale because what sliding scale often does, what I've often seen the dynamic being is that people who everybody's got money stuff in this culture because money is done so dysfunctionally. It's done in such unhealthy, unheart-centered ways that anyone of heart is going to have really legitimate money issues. And when people go into business, when they have small businesses or whether they're in big businesses, they often haven't really faced, walked through, healed those pieces to come into a healthier relationship. And the sliding scale often can function as a way of unloading our money issues onto the customer <laughs> saying, I can't decide, you decide. And they have money issues too. And so that usually ends up with people leaving. Like I've heard so many people that people will not choose to pay because of the decision-making process of like, I don't know how much is too much. I don't know how much is too little. I'd like to give this much. I can't, is this too little? You know, that creates so much ah, in the heart that some people will just go forget it. I'm not even going to step into that mess. And what we tried to do, and it's been really successful for us because most of our offers at this point are priced at pay from the heart where the client chooses the price. There are some pieces that are really needed, some of which have to do with some transparency around our needs as a business and being willing to name what our sustainable price is and also being willing to name what our minimum price is, and also being willing to name what are the circumstances where someone can pay less than the minimum, if that's even possible. Some offers that's possible, some offers it's not, depending on what they are. I usually say the language we usually use is if it would create difficulty paying for food or shelter, please pay less than the minimum, because I don't want that weight on my soul, on my heart of that. And you can say that some people have the choice about whether they're buying or not. And that's absolutely true. Some people come from economies or just in situations where they really need the help and support and the money's just not there. So when I said that it doesn't work for some businesses, we have built ourselves and our audience up to the point where we have enough people that it balances out. My basic experience is that people want to be generous and people are generous and have integrity. And so our average price tends to land near our sustainable price. It's just the way it is, even when some people are only paying a dollar and others are paying more than what we're asking. I think if a business is new, they don't quite know what their costs are. You know, they're still kind of figuring that out. I think if someone has a very small audience, I think if someone is working with primarily very premium, high touch offers, they may not have enough in motion to be able to implement this kind of a pricing model. It might work in terms of having like an in-depth conversation with a potential client on individual offers, but in general, I think you need a little bit of space and enough audience and enough real awareness about what the true sustainability for your company is to be able to step into that. Well, I'll tell you what I love about it is you show the possibility through your behavior of your brand. You behave your brand. The spirituality and faith quotient has a place in your leadership. And to me, that's the forefront of, of leading with love, which is really the constitution of your business. Yes. I love that, Mark. Thank you. 
Okay, my last leadership question, I want to talk about what you frame as the sequence of connection. So my definition of heart-centered leadership is to honor your connection with people and not have a presence or behavior or initiation of reciprocity or transaction. And I think we're parallel here. So I would love to hear your definition of the sequence of connection and and how you've implemented that into your leadership. Yeah. So the sequence of connection is actually something that first came out using different language in my training with my spiritual teachers. But it first came out when I created the sales training that we still teach to our clients. And it was about teaching how to connect to a potential client. And what I've noticed to myself in earlier years and noticed in our clients is that sometimes it can feel really uncomfortable because there's this neediness, especially for a business that isn't yet on stable financial ground. Like, oh my goodness, I really need them to buy or we're not going to make it or I need it to, you know, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's financial survival. Sometimes it's just love and acceptance. Like, am I even liked if they say no? Like, am I even acceptable or you know, appreciated. And so because all of this gets jammed up, the very first part in the sequence of connection is to connect to ourself and to connect not to a deeper part of ourself, but just the reality of how we're feeling. I'm feeling needy. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling vulnerable. And just having space for that. There's so much space to feel exactly how we're feeling. The next step in the connection in the sequence is connect to the divine, to the oneness, to the source of love, to God, to the mystery, whatever language people have for that. And the intention is not to then use spiritual connection to squash those feelings or push them aside. It's to ask in our heart, is love available even here? Is the divine present even here when I'm scared, when I'm vulnerable? It's beyond the scope of this short conversation for me to be able to teach spiritual connection But uh, we teach a very simple approach called the remembrance to people of many different faiths and some of no faith at all, but still have a sense of the spiritual. And this connection happens. And usually there's so there is that compassion for the vulnerability, but also this connection to a deeper sense of love. Because in the third step, once we're connected there, then we finally connect to the client or the potential client or the colleague or whoever we're connecting to. And and I often, and in that exercise, we actually ask ourselves internally, uh, because it can be a little weird to do it in real life, to bow to them in service to to the divine in their heart and just allow ourselves, like I'm being cared for, there's love here for me. And so I can just be here in service to you. I'm here to to really just serve you. And when we go through those three steps, it's not just words, like we can really feel it. When we've done this exercise in live workshops, you actually see people physically leaning towards one another. Like there's a, there's a physical pull, you know, like trust and people say, gosh, when I, they'll be standing across it, all be done silently. And the person who's acting as the client can say, gosh, I'm sitting here silently and I can feel in my heart suddenly there's tears in my eyes and I feel this sense of connection and trust with this person, even though they haven't said anything, just because of the internal change. And it's so profound and real. We have this 
as a way that we approach one another and a way that, um, the, you know, this teaching is made aware of in the team that we try to we try to be aware of this with each other. Of course, you know, we're all human. We're not always in a workshop. We have imperfections in terms of how that gets carried out. But if you do something like that enough, it takes, sure, it takes time the first time or to do it really intentionally. But the essence of that can really be done in three breaths. You know, it's like, how am I feeling? <sighs> Is love available even here? <sighs> and I'm in service to you. And then you're in a different space. And it's, uh, it's profound what can happen. So here's what you don't know about me. I'm a yoga teacher. So that reverent bow that I'm bowing to myself, I'm honoring that self-awareness in gratitude. It's amazing. And when you get onto a yoga mat, there's always that intention, which in Sanskrit, we call it the Sankalpa. And what you just beautifully displayed, that's how I start my day. So when people say it's such a coincidence that we met, and I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting out my intention with my presence by honoring self in that reverent bow. And it's beautiful that you're doing this with people. And the power of three breaths you know, to take that 30, 45 seconds, you know, when we do six breaths in a sequence, it physiologically resets our body. Who doesn't have 90 seconds in their day? So powerful, right. Mark. I love right. it. And I want to add one more piece in because one of the things that I love is when I see deep spiritual teachings reflected in different ways in the physical world. And what I don't know if you know about me is that in an earlier career, I was a paramedic in um, the San Francisco Bay Area 911 system in Oakland, California, actually. And one of the things that was drilled into me in emergency services is that the patient is not the first priority. You are your first priority. Your partner is the second priority. Other emergency services personnel are third priority. And the patient is the fourth priority. And this is all done in service to the patient. Because if we get hurt, then there's need to send out two more ambulances, one for us and one for the patient that we originally needed the help. And so when we take care of ourselves, we can really more quickly care for the person who needs help. And that's reflected in this ancient spiritual teaching that was, you know, I mean, in my lineage, it's hundreds of years old. And so it's just, I think it's a reminder, like you said, who doesn't have 90 seconds in their day? I remember my paramedic instructor in 1992 telling me, telling us as a class, like, no matter how bad the scene is, there's always time to take your own pulse. And um, that stayed with me. It's like, if, if emergency workers have time, we are, my business is not a 911 service. <laughs> there is time. There is time. And there's time for any of us in business, no matter how much people think there are deadlines or urgencies pushing down on us. So Mark, I used to be a disability case manager. So the hypervigilance, I used to work with paramedics, mm -hmm. another alignment we have. I, I totally get it. <laughs> Amazing. 
this is serendipitous. It's, I, I must have willed you from my yoga mat. Who knows? So sweet. So sweet. Okay. I'm going to switch to my fab four. These are just four fun questions. Whatever's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. First question. Tell us something that we don't know about Mark. I love woodworking. I've started woodworking in the last few years and um, I have come to accept myself as an artist because I, I had started drawing and just even copying superheroes for my kids. And they're like, oh my God, that's really good. And I'm like, I'm just copying it. And so I'll show off like the coaster I'm using, I made and this um, cherry wood stool in my office. And I just, um, I love woodworking. And um, despite people saying, oh, wow, can you make one for me? I'm like, nope, we are not another, I, do, I don't need another business, but I love it. And I love accepting myself as an artist just feels like in this second half of my life now in my mid fifties to just embrace something that I never saw in myself, uh, younger me. It's, it's so interesting. I'm in the same space. I'm in a, a creative workshop and, you know, full on imposter syndrome. Should I be here? I'm not creative. And so many gifts that I bring to the group that other people acknowledge and, when you surround yourself with like-minded people, uh, I started sketching and drawing and like you was feeling the same. I'm not really good at this. I'm only copying it. And then you get someone in the group who's an art teacher that says, yeah, but here's what I see and let's do this and let me help you with this. And then you go down that whole rabbit hole and you're like, this is fun. So I honor you for tapping into your creativeness and I'm going to make an assumption that woodworking is like a powerful meditation for you. It's, it's your world. It's your thought space for leadership. It's your self-care time. And you're creating some cool functional pieces. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you. So cool. Thank you. Okay. Second question, Mark. Favorite book that you've ever read that was life-changing? I want to say that my kids are always saying, well, they've stopped by now, but they're always saying, what's your favorite? And I'm like, I don't have a favorite. <laughs> like, I really like my personality resists pulling things down to just one thing. I mean, I think it depends on the on the perspective. You know, there are cookbooks that have totally changed me in terms of like, oh, my goodness, I can actually make that. Like I was I made hard candy recently and I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy. And then I've got all these spiritual books from my sheikh who passed a few years ago. Um, he was from Jerusalem and it's his books have transformed how I see the world, you know, his book, Music of the Soul and other ones. And there's a, um, there's a book by Neil Douglas Klotz, who is an Aramaic scholar and Sufi, who does what he calls expanded translations of texts from the Middle East. And he became really well known for the uh, Aramaic Lord's Prayer, because when you see the standard English translations from most of these things, they're so they're missing so much. But when you see these expanded translations of what was actually meant in the language of the time, it's like, just totally blows you away. And then there's all the science fiction and fantasy books that I love to read, you know, whether it was J.R. Tolkien as a, you know, as a teen or, um, oh, it's going right out of my head. Oh my goodness. What the heck? I can't think of the title of the book. Anyway. I love the imperfection. 
And you know mm-hmm. what? When you think of it, you'll email me and say, Deb, as soon as we finished, I remember it. <laughs> that's, that's I love exactly it. Right. Okay. Third question. If you could have dinner with any leader who's living or maybe who have passed away, who would it be and why? And what would be the dinner conversation? This is so interesting because this is another one of those kinds of questions that I never really connect with. It's like, if you could meet somebody in history, I'm like, I'm always at a loss because I don't feel drawn. You know, I've read a lot from um, different spiritual, religious, social activist leaders, you know, like Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, these are some of the more well-known ones, of course. But there was so much happening behind the scenes. They were never solo. There was always... Um, strategic and organizational support, things, Rosa Parks, like very little that happened was like spontaneous or, you know, there was so much. And so I'd love to hear more about what was actually happening, what kind of support was there, you know, what really happened in terms, and a lot of this is documented, I've read it, but it's like uh, what really happened in terms of how change was affected because it's never the one person at the head that made it happen. There's always dozens and hundreds of people, thousands of people that kind of connect in. It's like, how did that really unfold? So that's the thing that I'm, I'm curious about. I'd almost want to have the dinner with their assistants rather than with them, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Um, before I end the show with my fourth question, which is a sentence that I ask all my guests to finish, I just want to thank you for your time today, Mark, and sharing a little piece of your expertise and, and most importantly, for, for sharing your heart in, in what you do every day in your business and, and in your life. And it's, it's been an honor to meet you and have you today. Thank you. Okay, my last question is, please finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Heart-centered leadership is leadership. Any other kind of leadership is usually, not to put too fine a point on it, some version of tyranny. You've been listening to the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart-Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.